What a Savior indeed it is that we have. He who stood in our place, though we were condemned, sealed our pardon with his blood. Though we were guilty and vile and helpless, as the hymnist writes, he, the spotless Lamb of God, made atonement for all of our sin. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Our sermon text today is Luke 15, verses 1 to 24. Have you ever got out a coat in the fall, maybe late September, early October? It's a coat you hadn't worn in six-plus months. And uh, you put it on and you put your hand in the pocket. And what, what's that? A $20 bill? Wow! It's exciting to find just out of nowhere this $20 which was lost. You didn't even know it was lost, but it was lost. And you found it. What joy you have because you found that which is lost. That's really what this text is about today. The joy that comes with finding that which is lost. Follow along as I read from Luke 15, verses 1 to 24. This is the inspired word of God. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners. And eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls his friends together and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice! With me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Or that woman having 10 silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it. And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And he said, There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them, not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. And no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. 
I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and before you I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Ring quickly the best robe, and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand, and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf, and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead, and is alive again. He was lost, and is found. And they began to celebrate. The grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our God stands forever. Please pray with me. Our Lord, we thank you for this beautiful trilogy of stories of that which is lost being found. We pray that as we consider them, you would give us insight into your mind, that you would, through your word, penetrate our hearts, cause us to know you better, to know your person, to know your love, to know your grace, not just intellectually, but in the depths of our beings, intimately acquainted with you. We pray that that would happen here this morning by the power of your spirit, through your word, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if we were to understand any text of scripture, this morning is certainly no exception to the rule, it's important to understand the context. If there's anything that you've learned from me preaching over these past few years, well, let me step back a step. If there's anything that you've learned from me preaching these last few years, I hope that it is that Jesus Christ died for your sins and that you know him as your Savior and that you love him as your Savior and that you have given your life to him to live for his glory. After that, if there's anything that you've learned from me, I hope that it is this, that all of Scripture must be read within its appropriate context. That's why we look through the book of Luke. We start in Luke 1, verse 1, and we've worked our way all the way here to verse 15, chapter 15. We're going to work all the way to the end of the book, and, and we want to understand it not as just a bunch of just verses ripped out of context, but as verses within the flow of what Jesus is saying, uh, within the flow of what Dr. Luke is saying, within the flow of what God is saying to us. I had a professor in seminary who, who said it this way. He said, text without context is pretext. And I think he's absolutely right. That's a wonderful way of putting it. And so we need to remember, as we start Luke 15, where were we at the end of Luke 14? Because remember, there weren't, weren't any chapter divisions in the original text. There wasn't a, a 14 and a 15 and a, a paragraph break and turn the page and here. No, it just flowed from one to the other. So what happened at the end of chapter 14? You'll recall it was Jesus uttering these words, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Next sentence, 
Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. You see how those connect to each other, right? Jesus says, he who has ears, let him hear. He's not talking about just physical ears. He's, he's calling people to attention. He's saying, listen up, hear this. This is something important for you to hear. And the tax collectors and the sinners drew near so that they could hear what Jesus had to say. But in verse 2, we read the Pharisees and the scribes, the, the religious leaders of the day, those who were really spiritual, they grumbled. They said, this man receives sinners and eats with them. And so, in verse 3, he told them this parable. See, the, the so is saying, because of what we've read in verses 1 and 2. Context, Jesus says, draw near. Listen to what I have to say. Hear what I'm saying. All the sinners draw near to hear what he has to say. All the religious folks say, Aah! and because of that, Jesus told them this parable. And note, he doesn't say these parables. He says this parable, because it's really one big parable with three parts. You know, it's not just three different unrelated stories. It's the same story, told one way, told a second way, told a third way. A story of a shepherd who lost one of a hundred sheep. A story of a woman who lost one of ten coins. A story of a man, a father, who lost one of two sons. And the focus is on that which is lost. And more importantly, on what happens when that which is lost is found. The reason Jesus told the story is because these religious folks were were reacting in completely the wrong way to that which was lost, to the, the people who were lost. They were, they were grumbling about them. They were, they were upset about them. You know, they're the tax collectors. And just so we understand, the tax collectors weren't just like, you know, the tax collectors of our day. Nobody loves a tax collector, right? We, we're not looking to give them more money, but it was even worse in that day because the tax collectors weren't just the people who were getting some money, but they were people who had actually kind of aligned themselves with the Roman occupiers. On top of that, they, they were known for their dishonesty, for taking a little bit extra off the top. So they were, they were greedy, they were thieves, they were turncoats, they were traitors. They, everything bad that could be said about somebody pretty much applied to the tax collectors in the eyes of the Jewish people. And so they are kind of the epitome of sinners. Sinners being those people who, who don't do the things that we think they're supposed to do, right? Sinners in the eyes of the, the Pharisees and the scribes, the people who weren't as scrupulous in keeping the man-made laws that they had set up. Rabbinical practice in the day actually was such that, that if people were sinners, if they were these outsiders, these people who didn't do all the things that we think they need to do, the rabbinical practice was to not associate with them at all, even to teach them. We, we just don't want them to be around us. Make sure that we, we lock the door. If you see them coming, lock the door. Let's all hide beneath the pews, right, so they don't see us here. And then when they leave, we can get back out and carry on with church. That's kind of the idea of the attitude that they had toward, quote, unquote, sinners. They needed an attitude adjustment. Sadly, often within the church, we need an attitude adjustment, too. Oftentimes, we have similar attitude toward sinners 
That is, those who sin in ways that are particularly egregious in our eyes. Those who sin in ways that are different than the ways that we sin in. Those who, those who sin this way and that way, as opposed to you know, the way that we prefer to sin and prefer to look past in the per- way that, that is, as, as Jerry Bridges wrote in a book of respectable sins. problem with this is our attitude when we are like this the Pharisees attitude is nothing like Jesus attitude and if we are those who follow Jesus then our attitude should be like Jesus we recall Jesus said in Luke 5 I've not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance if this was Jesus purpose if Jesus whole purpose was to come to call sinners to repentance then then shouldn't that be our purpose as well if we are following him if we are those who who follow jesus if we are christians those who follow christ then we should be about christ's purpose imagine imagine you had a car that broke down and so you you looked in the phone book to find uh, an auto shop and right there at the top is abc auto repair you know they're smart they Put an A at the beginning of their name. Now it doesn't matter as much because nobody looks in the phone book anymore. You just go online. But but back in the day, that's the way it worked. Kids, there's this thing called the phone book. Oh, never mind. Uh, you look in the phone book. You get ABC Auto Repair. You call them up. You say hello. Yeah, I've got a car. I, I, it's not working. And they say, Yeah. Well, what do you want us to do about it? You say, Well, I, I was thinking maybe I could bring it by and you might be able to repair it. And they say. Well, uh, we, we don't like broken down cars here. You say, well, well, yeah, but you know, I was going to bring it there. You were going to fix it for me. And they say, no, nah, don't bring it by here. We don't want any of the broken down cars here. We've found that if people come by and see broken, car, broken down cars here, they, they think that we're not as good. You know, we, we only want nice, shiny, good-looking running cars here. You say, but, but wait, you're, you're an auto repair shop. That's what you do. That's, that's why you exist. And it's like, nope. No broken down cars wanted here. And you hang up the phone just kind of bewildered. And you're just like, what? What is going on here? But you see, that's what the church is like sometimes. That's what the church is like. We say, you know what? We, we'd just rather not have any broken down people here. You know, it kind of makes us uncomfortable when, when people who are broken down are here. When we get, get you know, sinners here. We really would rather them not be around us. Because, because you know, it's just nice if we can all kind of get together and just look nice together and, and just go through the motions and be comfortable together. It's just so much easier and so much better. And we don't have to worry about that stuff. But you see, that's, that's kind of what it's like when you're a church that's like that. You're like the auto repair shop that doesn't accept broken down cars. It makes no sense. You know, the charge that was often levied against Jesus was that he was a friend of sinners. How many people accuse you of that? You know, I, I can honestly say I'm not accused of that as often as I should be. It's not as often as it should be that people come to me and say, Pete, you know, you think you're hanging out with too many sinners maybe? That's not something that, that I'm accused of. But it is something Jesus was accused of. And so perhaps I should be accused of it more. We need to see what Jesus' attitude towards sinners was, and we see it here in, in these three stories, the brief story about the shepherd, the brief story about the woman, and a more detailed story about the father 
that, that we'll actually look into again next week. We're going to go in a little bit more detail to that story specifically and, and carry on a little bit from that next week. But, but this week, we just want to take a quick glimpse at it. And we see in these three stories, first of all, how, how that which is lost is found. Well, two things happen. First of all, we see in all the stories, there, there's, there's one who, who searches one who, who searches. We see in verse 4, What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he lost one, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? This picture of a shepherd has a hundred sheep. One disappears off into the woods somewhere, and he says, I'm going to go into the woods and find it. I, I need to go find it. And the woman has ten silver coins. She's got ten coins. She loses one. She doesn't just say, well, you know, I've still got nine coins. That's pretty good. No, she looks intently for it. She searches, sweeping, lighting a lamp, looking in every corner. You know, it's not the kind of thing where, you know, have you ever had this happen to you where you lost your keys maybe, and maybe you ask somebody, how's that? Have you seen my keys? And I uh, say, nope, nope, not sure where they are. You know, and, and uh, let's say maybe my wife says that to me, and then she walks in the room, and, and they're sitting on the table in front of me. Uh, you know, uh, yeah, sorry, I, I guess I didn't look all that intently for those, did I? That's not the kind of looking we're talking about here. There's a, a more intensive looking, searching, diligently pursuing, trying to find that which is lost here. It's not the story of just sheep just wandering home. It's not the story of reaching into your pocket and finding a coin in there. No, it is a purposeful, intentional searching that has been involved. God is seeking the lost in this way. And if he is seeking the lost in this way, we should too. What steps have you taken? Do you normally take as an individual? And what steps are we taking as a church, for that matter? As citizens of heaven, as ambassadors of grace, what are we doing as the body of Christ to seek out the lost. Not enough. Not enough. We need to do more. Not that God needs us and able to, to be able to accomplish his purposes. God doesn't need us for anything. He can do whatever he wants to do, and he can accomplish whatever purposes he wants, but he calls us to be faithful. He calls us to follow him, and he calls us to be a part of his mission on the earth. And so we are to be faithful in following him. There's a second thing that has to happen. The, the one who is lost has to realize their lostness. And we see a picture of this in the story of the prodigal son. He who, who took all he had and went off and lived in this prodigal way, this reckless lifestyle. And, and while he is gone, he kind of spends everything, runs out of money, and is left to feed upon the pods that the pigs are eating. He's, he's destitute. He's come to nothingness and then he finally says you know the servants in my dad's place have it better than I do I should go back and just join them he, he was humbled by his circumstances he humbled himself and lowered his head and marched back home he came to his father he had to realize that he was lost 
while he was still a long way off, we read in verse 20. It's interesting that Jesus says it that way. He doesn't say that he had come near. He didn't say he had found his way all the way back home. He was still a long way off when the Father saw him. Kind of points to the fact that the Father was looking for him, that he was searching for him. He saw him on the horizon, and so it is that this, this one who had been lost knew that to be reconciled with his father, he must turn away from his past and, and fly to the father, to the gracious, loving, forgiving embrace of his father. This is what we need to do too. As we are in the midst of our sin, as we are lost in our sin, we have no hope for salvation unless we turn our back on our past and return to our father, fly to our father, be found in his loving, gracious, forgiving embrace. It doesn't matter where we've been. It doesn't matter where we are. There is always a welcoming embrace from the Father if only we turn and return to him. The Father saw him while he was far off. He was searching him. And we will never repent unless the Father comes searching for us, unless he is, he is working in us, unless he comes hunting for us. We love because he first loved us. You know, as a pastor, I... I hear lots of confessions from people, not like the Catholic idea of sitting in a confession booth, but people tell me about things because they want to know that there is forgiveness for what they've done. They want to know that God could still love them even with this. And some of the things I've heard over the years have been shocking, frankly. They're, they're shocking. Kind of thing where, where you're like, wow, that kind of takes your breath away. But I tell you this, God is shocked by none of this. And there has never been a confession that I have heard from anyone, nor will there ever be, that is too shocking for the grace of God. For his grace is greater than all our sin. Jesus came to seek and save the lost. Second thing we see is the why. Why? The people in the story search for that which is lost. First we see the shepherd. The shepherd searched because he cared deeply for the sheep. He cared for the sheep. That's what a good shepherd does. We read that in John 10. A good shepherd cares for the sheep. He's not like a hireling who doesn't really care for them at all. Who's just doing his job, punching the clock and ready to go home at the end of the night. No, the good shepherd loves the sheep. He cares for the sheep. And we see that in the shepherd who pursues that sheep. We see the woman, she sought out this coin that, that was to her valuable. It was just one coin, but she only had 10. So even if there wasn't a whole lot of value in that one coin intrinsically, for her it was valuable. She, she said, I need to find this coin. And God searches and finds us for the same reasons, because he cares about us, because we are valuable to him, even if there is not an amazing intrinsic value to us. He still values us. How much does he value us? Well, he values us so much that he sent his only son to die for our sins, that he might find us, that he might bring us home. I ask the parents among you, how much would you have to value something to give up your child for it? How much would you have to value something to say, okay, 
In order to get that back, I will just give up my child. I'll sacrifice my child. I can speak for myself. <laughs> there, there might be things in this world that I would be willing to lay down my own life for. There might be things that I would be willing to die for. It is hard to imagine something that I would be willing to give up my child for. And yet that's what God has done. That is how very much he values those who are his. He has made the greatest imaginable, imaginable sacrifice. So great is his love for us. There's a secondary lesson to be taken from these parables. He is, he is a, a seeking, pursuing God by nature. That's who he is. We see it in these stories. We see it in Adam in the garden. When Adam sinned and hid from God, and God says, where are you? We see it in Jonah when he flees from God. Instead of going to Nineveh where he's called, he flees to Tarshish and God pursues him and, and finds him hiding. And perhaps for you today, you are sitting here and you are hiding from God. You're here in church and you think this is kind of a weird place to hide from God, but there are people who are here today who are still hiding from God. You can do that. You can hide in plain sight. You can, you can hide in the midst of a group of Christians. You, you might still be hiding from God. If you are hiding from God, he is seeking you now. Yield to him. Give your life to him. Trust in Christ Jesus alone for your salvation and know the joy of that salvation. Do that today. Don't hesitate. Don't hide any longer. You have a seeking, loving, gracious God pursuing you. Third, we see the response to that which is lost. In verse 5, when he found the sheep, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. He, he tenderly cares for it. He doesn't say, you stupid sheep. He doesn't pull out his whip and crack it. He doesn't kick it in its rear. He picks it up tenderly, lays it upon his shoulders, and rejoices. When he comes home, he, he can't just rejoice by himself. It's not enough to just rejoice. He has to call the friends and call the neighbors. Everybody, come rejoice with me. I want to throw a big party. The woman's the same way in verse 7. Verse, verse 7 says, or in verse, I'm sorry, in verse 9. She finds the coin, calls her friends and neighbors and says, rejoice with me. For I found the coin that is lost. And so we see in verses 7 and 10, this is a picture of the joy that exists in heaven when one who was lost is found. There will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. There is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And the joy that is in the Father's heart eclipses all else, renders everything else meaningless. 
It doesn't matter what your sin has been. It doesn't matter how far you have journeyed. It doesn't matter where you are, what you have done. The joy of your Father in finding you is so great. It was just a week or two ago that it was the 10-year anniversary of a big news story. Perhaps you remember, perhaps you don't. It was big, especially for me, uh, because it took place in my hometown of St. Louis. But it, but it made the national news. It was about a young boy uh, named Ben Owenby who had been kidnapped a few days earlier. And uh, an alert eyewitness had seen a, a white truck that was all rusted out and, and had noted it to the police and they found such a truck and, and it turned out when they went to the apartment of a man named Michael Devlin who owned that truck, they found Ben Owenby there. And it was a wonderful thing to find this child who had been kidnapped a couple days earlier, but that's not all they found. They found another teenage boy there named Sean Hornbeck. Sean had been kidnapped four years earlier. And for, for four years, his parents knew not where he was. For four years, they had thought he was most likely dead. And now, he was found. He was alive. And I remember seeing an interview with, with Sean Hornbeck's parents shortly after he'd been found. And the interviewer asked them, have you asked Sean what happened during those four years, that time that he was being held captive. I mean, surely during that entire time, there was some time where he could have made a phone call to the police or, or called home or, or gotten help. There was surely some time he could have done something. What, what happened during that four years? Have you asked Sean yet? And his parents' answer made it patently clear that at that moment, that was of very little importance to them. They said that if Sean wants to talk about those things, then in his time, he can talk about those things. But at this time, there was only one thing that was important to them. They had been convinced that they would never see their boy again, that he was dead, that he was gone. And now they had their son back. For this, my son, was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And we see this, the same kind of love, don't we, in, in Christ's parable here, where, where, where there were questions that the father could have asked of the par, uh, prodigal son as he returned. He, he could have asked him all kinds of questions about, about, about how did you waste all that I gave you? What, what kind of life were you living? Why, why did you shame me so much in leaving? Why, why did you act in such a dishonorable fashion? He could have been angry. He could have been bitter, but there was none of this. He saw his son in the distance, and he, he began to run toward him. He, he hiked up his robe so he could sprint. He bears his legs. It's, it's just the most undignified picture you can imagine as this, this respectable Jewish man running after his son who had dishonored him so terribly. And, and he reaches him and, and his son 
is there and he throws himself at him. And he, he drapes himself over him. And he hugs and kisses him. The Greek literally says that he kissed fervently and affectionately. And the son begins his well-rehearsed speech. Father, I, I don't deserve to be a son. But the father cuts him off. He won't let him continue. He tells his servants to get the best robe, get the ring, get some shoes, get the fatty calf. We're going to have a party because my son is back. My son. And he celebrates. That's what God does. That's what God does when he finds one who is lost. He celebrates. Can you believe that God would celebrate over you, over me, in such a fashion? He does. Jesus is the good shepherd. He is seeking to save the lost. He weeps over sin and over its, its impact, over its effects. We've seen that in past weeks. But he rejoices over those whom he has saved. What a blessing. I want to close with one of my favorite verses of Scripture, Zephaniah 3, 17. It reads this. The Lord your God is in your midst. He is mighty to save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Can you picture that? Can you picture the God of the universe singing over you? <laughs> singing over you joyfully, exultantly singing over you. That is how God rejoices. What a promise. What fatherly love. What amazing grace. Would you pray with me? Our Lord, we...